Leave it to a deacon to come up with a competition to make things more interesting than get participation. Yay, we, that's why we have them. Yeah. Well, hey, if you've got a Bible, turn in it to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. We're in a series on Hebrews. Last week we did verses 1 through 4. This week, uh, verses 5 to 13. Um, last week, the message was about a warning about what could happen if you drift away from the faith, and there's consequences associated with that. Today, though, is, is the flip side. Today's the encouragement. Um, it's about a vision of what's in store if you don't drift away from what you've heard. Um, so it's about what we can expect in this great salvation that's been described to us so far. Well, let's read the passage, and, uh, and then we'll pray and get right into it. Hebrews 2, 5 to 13. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet." Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we ask for your help to see beyond words into your heart that's being communicated and the good news and the promise that's communicated here to everyone who sees you as Savior, everyone who's looking to you. Uh, for the answers, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts again today. Show us the greatness of your salvation. Sweep us up again into some great things that we'll leave, we'll leave here filled up and encouraged and ready for another week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems to me that we need two kinds of encouragement throughout life in order to be hopeful and energized in order to get through the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, to quote Stephanie, where is she today? Or, no, to quote Shakespeare, sorry. Uh, Stephanie knows Shakespeare. Sometimes you need the quick boost, which is a night out with friends. It's an A on your exam. It's a piece of pie. It's a hug and a prayer. We need that quick boost once in a while. It, it, it's encouragement the way ibuprofen works. It, it uh, doesn't solve the deeper issues, but it does bring immediate relief to your pain. 
But once the quick boost is over and life hits you in the face, you need a stronger medicine that works on the deeper issues. What you need is the long view. You need the long view that's the assurance that your story is going to end well, that you're going in a good direction, that the best is yet to come, despite appearances. And when there's light at the end of the tunnel, we get hope to press on in the darkness. This passage gives that long view encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. It was written to those who, according to chapter 10, endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction for their faith. That's often going to be the case for believers. It's not a strange thing. So we need perspective. We need to know that we're going to be all right in the end. And this passage assures us of that. It begins with the statement, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. This begins the writer's shift from the warning to the encouragement. Yes, it would not be good if you drift from the faith, but listen to this. There is a world to come, a world to come, a world in which the angels that these guys so esteemed and made a lot out of, they're not going to be in charge in this world to come, as mighty and as impressive as they are. The world to come is what John the Apostle saw in the book of Revelation. is the vision that was given to him of the future. It was a vision of what we call heaven, or more specifically, the new heaven and the new earth. It's not just a mystical spiritual realm. It's a physical earth. It's the world to come, a world that's going to replace this world, and where all who trust in Christ are going to go. As the writer starts out with that, he piques our interest by saying, God has not subjected that world to angels. So it begs the question, then to whom is the world to come subjected to? <laughs> and therein lies the encouragement of this passage. The answer to world-weary believers is this. God has subjected the world to come to you. Yeah under the greater authority of Jesus, our Savior. But it is going to be subjected to you. This passage tells the story of how followers in Christ are going to go, we go from a low place in this life to a high place in that life. It's in verse 10, God is bringing many sons to glory through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, then this is the long view encouragement, the kind that you're going to need to come back to again and again and again. If you're not a believer, this is the invitation to that encouragement. It's the story that your life will end well if you believe what the Scriptures say about this. So let's follow the flow of the passage. Let's dig into it. It starts with a description of what we can call the unrealized glory of man unrealized glory, meaning God created humanity to experience great things, but we've blown it in a big way, and it's not the way things are supposed to be anymore. Here's how the writer makes the case. Verses 6 through 8 are a quote from Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a poem or a song of wonder that God, the mighty creator of the universe, should care about us mere mortals. 
the psalmist asks, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? So he was having a moment like you might have when you're out camping, and you're in a wide open space, and you can see the night sky, and all the stars are out, and like they're brilliant. And so he was having a moment like that. You can imagine him sitting by the campfire, looking up, and he says, Lord, I don't understand it. When I consider the vast expanse of the heavens, the moon and the stars that you've put in place, we humans seem so small and insignificant by comparison. What are we in the big scheme of things that you should care about us? That's the, that's the moment that he's having. But he knows his Bible, and he knows just how much God does care about us, which is what really amazes him. He says, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, angels, where he says, well, you made us a little bit lower than them. They're spiritual beings of great power, as we saw a few weeks ago. They can rescue people in miraculous ways. They can destroy entire cities. They have great power. And usually when people see them, they're struck with terror. By contrast, when people see us, nobody's struck with terror. Like, we, we don't have that effect on anybody. We don't have their power. We can't appear and disappear like angels. We are lower than the angels in that way. And yet the psalmist knows we're higher than the angels in another way. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. He's talking there about the truth of Genesis chapter 1 in verse 26. At the dawn of creation... When God finished making the moon and the stars and everything else, He made mankind as His crowning achievement. Listen to this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The glory and honor that God has crowned all people with is that we are made in God's image and He has placed us in charge of the earth. To be made in God's image means that we're more like God than anything else in all of creation. Only with man does God enter into a personal relationship. Only with man only man has been given the capacity to know God in a personal way. It's a privileged position. God has dignified us by making us in His image. It's what makes every person on earth significant. And it's to man and only to man that God has put everything in subjection under our feet. Let them have dominion, he says. Along with our intrinsic dignity, we've been given the world as a template for imitating our Creator God and making something of the world to bring forth good and useful and beautiful things from the potential that's locked up in this amazing planet that He's created. So that's, when, that's what you're doing when you, when you make art or when you practice engineering 
You're imitating the Lord, our Creator, who, who made this place, and He wants us to, to bring forth good things. It's what you do when you're wiring a house. You're exercising dominion. When you write a Word document, when you grow vegetables, when you train a pet, you're acting as God's representative. You're doing things after the image of your Creator. And the earth is supposed to be a willing, uh, will, it's supposed to willingly respond to your initiative and to your labor. He has put everything in subjection under His feet. Or as verse 8 says, He left nothing outside of His control. That means man's control. Creation as God made it was intended to be a place where all life on earth and the earth itself willingly responds to and cooperates with man in his endeavors. He faces no resistance. Nothing is outside of his control. He always accomplishes what his heart intends under submission to God himself. And as I say that, you already see there's a problem. <laughs> Does that sound like the world you live in right now? <laughs> when you go to work, does it seem like there is no resistance to your attempts to do good. <laughs> you always accomplish what you hope for without any interruptions, no complaints, without something going sideways. Have you, ever, have you never had car problems or a computer virus? Have you never been sick or injured? Does your pet follow your every command and never chew on anything that they aren't supposed to? We have a pet now. So just be prepared that there's going to be pet illustrations <laughs> in sermons for the foreseeable future. When you read local and world news, does it seem to you like we are all cooperating with each other to make the world a better place? Does it seem to you like God has left nothing outside of your control? I think we know the answers. No, no, and no. The reality is we don't seem to have control over anything. Every day we encounter resistance to our efforts. We rarely get done everything we want to do. The good intentions run into roadblocks. People who are supposed to be cooperating in harmony with one another as co-rulers under God's authority, we seek to dominate and control each other. So what are we to make of that? How do we reconcile what we experience with what Psalm 8 and this passage say about man's dignity, his glory and honor in this world? Well, one of the things I love about the Scriptures is that they're so true to life. Because the writer of Hebrews did not live in a fantasy world. He knows what the world is what it's like. And right after quoting Psalm 8, he says this, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. At present, we don't see it. <laughs> we don't see Psalm 8 happening anymore. We don't see everything in subjection to man. There is resistance. There is lack of control. There are challenges, problems, disappointments. No, everything is not in subjection to us. But he says that's only the case at present. This is not how things began, and it is also not how things are going to end, as we'll see. But it's just the way things are right now, and there's a reason for that. It's because we wrecked that dignity and glory with, sin, with, with our sin. Sin is what wrecked it. 
In Genesis 3, when the man and woman decided to disobey God, it came with consequences at three levels. Number one, there was a break in our relationship with God. Man stopped living under God's authority, and that poisoned our dominion. Now we do things for all the wrong reasons. Number two, there was a break in our relationship with each other. From that point on, there would be conflict between people. As Ecclesiastes 8.9 says it, man had power over man to his hurt. And number three, there was a break in our relationship with the world itself. It no longer cooperates willingly. It yields thorns and thistles, as Genesis 3 puts it. It's when you're just about finished with a project for school and you hit save and your computer crashes and you lose everything. Thorns and thistles, that's, that's what we have now. It hurts. Sin explains why at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to man. It's the reason we can't get things done and the reason why life is hard and the reason why we suffer. So where do we get encouragement? given the present state of the world. Well, here's where we get it. It's by contemplating the realized glory of Jesus. The realized glory, as in obtained, as in Jesus having conquered the brokenness of this world and broken into glory as the front runner so that others will follow him. The writer says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that is to man, but there is something that we do see, something that gives us hope. Verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now what does that say about Jesus? It says, first of all, that for a little while he was made lower than the angels. In Jesus, God himself entered into the human experience, because Jesus is God and man. God entered into the human experience, taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus. He became a real, live human being with all the limitations that humans have. He had to eat and drink. He had to sleep. He could suffer at other people's hands. He could be killed and was. Jesus was made lower than the angels as it applies to his humanity. He entered our experience fully. But it also says he was crowned with glory and honor. But in what sense? Is that only in the sense of Genesis 1, the inherent human dignity of being made in God's image? No, it's more than that. It says he was crowned with glory because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In other words, his glory and honor are the result of dying on the cross in our place and for our sins. That's what it means that he tasted death for everyone. It means Jesus tasted the bitterness of dying under God's wrath so that others would not have to. We will all die physically, every one of us, but we do not all have to die bearing the penalty for our sins. Jesus died to save us from that by bearing the penalty himself. Now, it needs to be said that everyone doesn't 
mean every human being who has ever lived. That would mean everyone is saved and no one needs to hear the warning of the previous verses about drifting away from the faith and suffering just retribution. Everyone is qualified later in verse 11 as those who are sanctified, set apart. Verse 13, as the children God has given me, God has certain people, He says, I'm going to save them, I'm going to give them to you, Jesus. And you, you die for their sins and rescue them. Everyone means everyone who has made the profession of verse 13, I will put my trust in Him. Jesus tasted death for everyone who trusts in His death for our sins. And it's because He did that that God highly exalted him as our Savior. That's the glory and honor that verse, thir- that verse 10 points to. It was fitting that, is, that he, that is God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What happened on the cross is that Jesus was revealed as the founder of, of our salvation. That means the originator of it, the author of it, the one who brings it to pass, the one who accomplishes it. That's why other translations call him the captain or the pioneer of our salvation. He's the, the captain who leads his people to battle and to victory. He's the pioneer who brings his wagon train through dangerous territory to safety on the other side. That's his glory and honor. On the cross, God made Jesus the perfect Savior. It doesn't mean He was imperfect before that, as in the sense of moral imperfections. He was sinless. He was perfect in obedience to God all of His life. But God made Him perfect perfect in the sense of completing in Jesus everything that was necessary in order to save us. One thing that was necessary was that He taste death for our sins. He was made perfect in that sense on the cross. And so God crowned him with glory. And it's the glory of Philippians 2, 8 through 10. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the realized glory of Jesus. God has crowned Jesus with glory and honor for navigating this world without sin and then bearing the penalty for the people that He's going to save. The Jesus who was once lower than the angels now rules over them and over everything else as well. God has put everything in subjection to Him, to Jesus, and He has left nothing outside of His control. Now here's another perplexing thing to figure out. If Jesus has that kind of control, if this world is subjected to Him, then why do so many bad things still happen, particularly to the people whom Jesus saved? Remember, this letter is written to persecuted believers in Christ, and we could say, they could say of Jesus at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. 
They could say that. It doesn't look like Jesus is in charge here. It looks like politicians are in charge. It looks like, you know, all sorts of other people are in charge, but not Jesus, because if he was in charge, why would these things be happening to me? Especially one that I know he's died for and loves and intends to save. That's a perplexing question. You might think the same thing when you follow the news. Every time some new thing happens that looks like a threat to your livelihood or to your practice of faith, it's tempting to think the Lord is not really in charge. But the reality is He is in charge. God has left nothing outside of Jesus' control. Every decision of Congress and the Supreme Court, every transmission of the coronavirus, every adverse circumstance that enters your life is inside the control of Jesus. If it must not prevail, then it will not prevail. If it does prevail, then He has a purpose for it to prevail. That's consistent with Him being the founder of our salvation. So trust in Jesus as Savior includes trust that He is in control of all things and He knows what He's doing with the world. So we are still going to pray for righteousness to prevail. We pray like Psalm 140. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray things like that. But when we don't see it, we also trust in the reality that God has put this world in subjection to Jesus. And so we rest in the knowledge that Jesus will ultimately save us from all that is evil. And that leads to the last part of this passage and to our long view encouragement, which is the realized glory of man. Realized, obtained, we too... <laughs> have that in our future as believers. Verse 10 says that God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the foundation, founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Many sons, many children are being brought to glory through the suffering of our founder, Jesus. And what kind of glory did our, did our founder taste death to give us? Well, it's the glory of Psalm 8 restored <laughs> and made permanent. It's not to angels that God subjected the world to come. No, the world to come is where everything is put in subjection under His feet, meaning man's feet. Nobody replaces Jesus on His throne. He's the Lord of all. But as the Lord, He shares His kingdom with those He saves. Paul encouraged Timothy with these words in 2 Timothy 2. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. In the world to come, we will reign with Jesus over a new earth, a physical world, which once again will be a willing servant to God's image bearers. We won't be just disembodied spirits floating around in the heavens. We'll be physical people on a physical earth where we will live and work and play in the presence of God and with every knee bowing to Jesus as Lord. 
we will do it in physical and glorified bodies like the one that Jesus has right now. We can't see clearly what that life is going to be like. But when the Apostle John saw this vision of heaven in the Revelation, what he saw was that all the consequences of sin will be undone. Our relationship with God will be completely mended. In the vision of the new heaven and earth, John saw in Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man. The, re the relationship's restored. I'm going to live with you permanently. <laughs> and Jesus is going to be there in the flesh with us. So we'll be able to see Him and touch Him and know Him. Whatever longings you had to know God better will be fulfilled. There will be no more veil between you and the Holy One. That's been restored. Our relationship with each other will be mended. In that world to come, John saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's a picture of a world in harmony. Every single person ecstatic, grateful for the Lamb who was slain. Everybody, every knee bowing before Jesus, everybody united in their appreciation of God, everybody in total harmony, and that is the only way we can have it, is when every knee does bow to Jesus Christ. All of our attempts in this world to get unity will fail if they aren't rooted in that appreciation for the Lamb who was slain. And John saw that day is coming. There's a day coming when every knee will bow, and there will be total harmony, and there will be no more conflicts, no more wars, no more arguments. We will all be for the Lord and for each other. Our relationship with the world will be mended. For in the world to come, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. All suffering, all disappointment will end. Creation will be more, once again compliant and cooperative to man's initiatives as we cultivate and bring forth beautiful and valuable achievements. No longer will work bear thorns and thistles. Everything's going to be enjoyable. No more computer crashes. <laughs> No more car accidents, no more viruses, no need for hospitals. Just endless ages of joyful, fruitful exploration, cultivation of a perfect world. What's true of Jesus now will be true of us then. We will praise God with the words of the psalmist. You made us for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned us with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under our feet. That's what you might call the vision splendor. <laughs> it's the truth that has the long view encouragement in it, enough to get you through many trials of this life. But here's something. That, this is not the only encouragement in this passage. That, that glory is great, but that glory comes with something even more personal and more right now. Our hope is not all in the world to come. There's a present reality to encourage us here. Verse 11 summarizes it. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
Not ashamed to call them brothers. Let that sink into your world-weary soul as a believer in Jesus. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to associate with you. (laughs) Not ashamed. He calls you by the family name, brother or sister. Remember that the letter of Hebrews was written to believers who were out of favor with their culture. They were rejected by a lot of people because of their faith in Christ. And that hurts. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes to be shamed. It can be lonely to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And we can start to doubt ourselves, especially if you have a hard time embracing the forgiveness of the gospel. You're aware of what you should be and you're not. You're aware of your sins. And your relationship with God can start to feel like working remotely from home. You know, you have a boss somewhere and you're doing your work, but there's no sense of relationship. But God cares that we know His approval. As believers, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He identifies with us. He wants us to know that He's in solidarity with us. The writer makes sure we see this. Verse 10 says, God is bringing many sons to glory. Not just people, but sons. To be a Christian is to be adopted into the family. God considers us His children. And that's why Jesus can call you brother or sister because He is the Son of God. Verse 11, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Jesus is the one who sanctifies. He's the one that sets us apart and saves us. And believers are the ones who are sanctified. We're the recipients of His sanctifying work. And we, both Jesus and us, we have one source, that being God the Father. The same God who made us in His image also made the man, Jesus, in Him, His image. We share a common Father, a common sonship. And verse 12, which is a quote from Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is like Jesus, the worship leader, on a Sunday morning. He comes to church with the rest of us, you might say. He takes his place in the midst of the congregation. He comes as a a member of the body, and he leads us in adoration to God. I'm going to sing God's praises with the rest of you, my brothers, in the faith. Verse 13, it's not a direct quote of any one passage, more of a summary of how Jesus identifies us with us in another way. I will put my trust in Him. In other words, Jesus does what He calls all of us to do. He trusts in God. He's the perfect example of trusting in God. He trusted God all the way to the cross. Peter said of Jesus, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus identifies with our need to trust in God because he did it himself perfectly. And again from verse 13, Behold, I and the children God has given me. That's a quote from Isaiah 8. Another reference to the fact that believers in Christ are adopted sons and daughters of God. God has given His children, the ones He chooses to save, to Jesus, who tastes death for us, who loves us and identifies with us in our humanity as a brother. 
The point is Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers or sisters. That's his posture towards you right now if you're a believer in Christ. Not ashamed. You might feel ashamed. He's not ashamed. (laughs) He loves having rescued you from your sins. He loves it. He loves being with you. He's going to enjoy eternity with you. He's not going to put up with you. He's actually invited you and secured you (laughs) to be in the family. Already that's the way he feels. He stands up and defends you when you are reviled, when you are told you are defeated and useless and you shouldn't be around. Jesus stands up and says, this is my brother. This is my sister. And they will share eternal glory with me. Let me just close with this. And you guys can get ready if you want to, the worship team. The path that Jesus took to glory was first the cross and then the crown. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And as a believer in Jesus, your life will follow the same trajectory because we're being conformed to his image. The way of the believer is first the cross, then the crown. Not a cross of atonement, but it is a cross of obedience and suffering Right for righteousness. First, we're made lower than the angels, and then everything in subjection to us in the world to come. We might script our lives in a different way, but that is the way. And if it was the right way for Jesus, then it's the right way for us. We should expect difficulties and challenges in this life. Jesus endured no less, but we can also expect the glory. Glory in the world to come follows the suffering as surely as day follows night. Our story as believers is a story of lowliness to glory through Jesus, and that means your story ends well. You are going in a good direction, and the best is yet to come despite appearances. Let's stand and sing as